0: You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit largerstory.com. God coming to us with a question. And the question is meant to reveal whether in that deep, obscure center of our being, where our fundamental option decides our destiny, whether or not the pure love of God is within us. Here's the deal Augustine supposes. God comes to you and says, I will give you anything you want. You can possess the whole world. Nothing will be impossible for you. You will have infinite power. Nothing will be a sin, nothing forbidden. You will never die, never have pain, never have anything you do not want, and always have anything you do want, except for just one thing. You will never see my face. Would you take the deal? Augustine asks, Did a chill arise in your hearts when you heard the words, You will never see my face? And that chill, this author Peter Kreft says, is the most precious thing in you. That is the pure love of God. I want us to pray as we move toward our last in a series of four devotionals. Father, nothing matters more than knowing you, nothing matters more in finding you than to see you revealed in your Son. And I pray as we look at this portion of your Word that we've been leading up to all week that you'll accomplish your purposes for us this morning. Father, that as we leave tomorrow, that if nothing else happens, if there's nothing but confusion and Frustration, maybe irritation, whatever else might happen, whether good or bad, that there might be a deeper awareness that you have put within us a passion to know you. It's already there because your spirit dwells within and your spirit's preoccupation is to point to Christ. Father, help us to put ourselves in line with you so that that passion is more deeply released and recognized as The very best thing that you've done for us, you've given us a love for yourself, because we've seen how much you love us. Use this morning to further us in that direction, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Turn again to the passage that was pointed out to me, John chapter 17, and I want to introduce our last series of thoughts by reading these verses again. John chapter 17, why did Jesus come? There are several equally accurate answers to that question. He came to offer himself a sacrifice, the spotless lamb. He came to redeem us, pay the price nobody else could pay. But central to his mission was to reveal his father. In verse 26, Jesus concludes his high priestly prayer. His amen consists of these words, verse 26, I have made you known to them. That's what I came to do, to make known to them what they could see in no other way. To take care of their core problem, which is unbelief. I have made you known to them, and he's speaking now before his death. I have done it, but notice it continues, and I will continue to make you known, as he anticipates the cross... I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. And I presume what's being said there, that if the passion that God has planted in my heart is to be there and to grow and to develop, it's it's going to depend on my seeing the heart of the Father revealed in the Son. How important for us to lift ourselves out of our own story, or to be lifted up. We don't lift ourselves but to be lifted up out of our story and into a far more significant story, how wrong for counselors to spend endless hours talking about the minutiae of one individual's story and thinking that by complete analysis that the person will find life. How different to listen to a person's story with the agenda in the counselor's heart, in the pastor's heart, in the parent's heart, in the friend's heart, of somehow using that story to lift people up into the larger story. I'm doing something, Jesus said, and it's the story of what God is all about. I've come to do what nobody else could do, to make you known. <clears throat> no one else could do that, <clears throat> quite like I can. And I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me, the passion of the Father for the Son, expressed dramatically three times in outbursts from heaven that that kind of passion for Christ could actually be in me. Do you believe, as I believe, that to the degree that that passion is in us, that all of our other problems become secondary? That a great many of the struggles that we have will, in fact, dissipate? If you believe that, then that must become your agenda as a counselor. What are we trying to do as counselors? What needs to be done is to point to Jesus in a way that reveals the Father, which creates passion in us for the Son. Now, turn to Mark chapter 1, and let's get to the text that we've been anticipating all week. Mark chapter 1, there were three times when the Father spoke from heaven on behalf of his Son. And with the work that we've done on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday... Perhaps we can call into bold relief some of the significance and drama of what the Father is saying on these three very unique occasions. We've established in our times together these past three mornings that when God made Adam and Eve, there was something about himself that could not be revealed until sin came into the world. Eve was deceived into thinking that God was holding out on her, that God wasn't a good God, and she could do better taking care of herself. There was more to be had. She could arrange for her own well-being, arrange for her own exaltation, arrange for her own complete joy by taking a bite. Now Now that his wife is a sinner, Adam knew what God had already revealed about himself, but wasn't sure how God would deal with this entirely unprecedented situation, and therefore concluded, I suggested, that he wondered perhaps if God was good enough, and therefore took matters into his own hands and ate a piece of the fruit as well. And plunged the entire race into sin. And the virus within Adam has been passed on to every one of us ever since. All except for one. But the virus has been passed on to me, by my parents, to my children, through me and Rachel. To all of you, by whoever your parents were. And the virus, basically, I'm suggesting to you, consists in the the conviction that God really isn't all that good. And that conviction then gets strengthened by life's experiences because he doesn't look all that good. Our definition of infinite goodness would lead to different kinds of activity than we see. And because we already have a predisposition to think he's not all that good, the data of life strengthens us, justifies us, and our thought that he isn't good. And with that suspicion running around in our minds, bad things happen. Cain develops a way of living that basically says when... When I'm cheated of what I think I should get, I intend to destroy. I will not look, I will not tolerate any injustice in my life as I define injustice. Don't be consumed by matters of justice. That's God's prerogative. And the energy of Cain begins with being consumed by matters of justice as he perceives it, which is certainly wrong, kills his brother, and then builds a city using all his resources to make it happen, and his heir... Six generations removed, Lamech, then produces three children, three boys, who all have certain talents on which civilization is built, and civilization now is built with that relationship. And that's the story of our day. But there's a godly line that continues on, but that godly line now gets mixed up with the ungodly line, and relationship is again destroyed, and there's no possibility of God having a relationship with his people on the basis of what's going on, so he destroys the whole bunch. But then Noah's preserved, and then Noah makes an offering, and God is pleased because God sees that even though the thoughts and inclinations of their heart are evil, from childhood, every child that's born is born with a stain. And it's a stain which renders them impure so that I cannot have relationship with them because the holy and the unholy cannot cohabitate. But there's a pleasing aroma in the Lord's nostrils from the offering that Adam offers because I think God... In his wonderful imagination is now visualizing time, and he's thinking about all the children that are going to be born. He's thinking about about David, a man after my own heart, who is stained and kills. Samuel, a good man, who doesn't handle his children very well. He's thinking about all the people that are coming, that he's pleased with, but he can't Use as a basis for relationship as a stain. Think of how the father must have felt every time a child was born. Every time a child is born and the infinite mind of the father looks down and sees that child and says, I can't relate with that one. And then a baby comes along that was prophesied. And the angels shout and the father starts getting excited. And for 30 years, that child lives without a flaw. Then, he begins his ministry of what? Revealing the Father's heart. He comes up out of the waters of baptism, and one gospel tells us he was praying. And as he comes up out of the waters of baptism, immediately we read in Mark chapter 1 and verse 9, At that time he came from Nazareth. And Galilee was baptized, and as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, and the Father, who had looked at every baby born in the history of time, realizing there's no basis for relationship in any of them, they can't take care of the problem, now he sees this baby, matured to age 30, coming up out of the waters praying, and saying, I believe in his prayer, something along the lines of, I'm here, ready to do your will. You want me to make known what kind of a father you are. You want me to make known what kind of a God you are. I'm going to reveal your heart. I'm going to do what nobody would ever expect God to do. I'm going to die for those who hate him. I'm going to let you know the kind of, I'm going to let them know the kind of father you are. And at that time the heavens were torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You're my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Can you catch the passion in the father's voice? Our boys are Um, real athletes. Both are very talented in several sports. When our boys were much younger, an older boy, who had at that time very blonde hair, almost white, was quite a soccer player. And I remember standing at a game once where Kefi was about eight or nine, ten years old, and um, all the kids were out playing on the soccer field, and I was there, and a couple of other fathers were next to me who I didn't know. They knew each other. They were chatting amongst themselves. Their kids were playing, and I was standing watching my boy play. And as the ball was being kicked down to the the wrong end of the field, from my perspective, my boy stole it. He was able to steal the ball from the fellow who was dribbling it down to make a goal against us. And he stole the ball away from the other kid, and he began kicking it upfield toward, toward the goal where he wanted to score. And because he was very fast... He outdistanced all the other runners as he kicked the ball down the field. This white shock of hair running down the length of the field, kicking the ball ahead of him, and he was going a mile a minute. And I heard some of the fathers next to me say, "Who's that kid?" And I leaned over and said, um, "That's my boy. Genetic show." That's what the father was saying. That's my boy. Genetic show. He's the express image of me. You watch him. As you watch him dribble the ball down the field. As you watch him outrace everyone else. He's living the way I designed people to live. You watch him. You're going to see perfection. You're going to see the meaning of life. You're going to see what it's all about. That's my boy. I'm well pleased with you, son. Look at Mark chapter 9. Verse 2, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. This one who had no beauty that we should desire him, the wrappings were taken off. And for just a moment, the glory of God was made known through the man, Christ Jesus, who was fully God. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Why those two? Another passage tells us what they were talking about. They were talking about the Lord's decease, his exodus, his death, his crucifixion. Why would that be their topic? And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. And again, we must realize he's saying this in great fear and trembling. This is not just a fairy tale. This actually happened. This is a man, Peter, who had spent some time with another man named Jesus and didn't have a clear picture of who this Jesus was at all. And all of a sudden, Jesus is transfigured and Peter is just beside himself with fear. And in his fear, he says, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say because they were all so frightened. That never stopped Peter. (laughs) And that's the second time that the father broke forth, and a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. What's going on here? What's going on in the father's heart? What's his passion for Christ? Where do we find life? How do we look for life? How many Christians, you suppose, are looking for life by trying harder to do well, do good things? How many Christians are trying to find life by doing what's right, reforming themselves, promising to do better? How many Christians live in long-term frustration with no joy, no deep affection for God, just pressure? Every biblical command is one more pain in the neck that we're stuck with. Every absolute is one more requirement that keeps us from really being free. God looks down on the scene and sees Peter celebrating Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And I think as if the Father can't control himself. And he pulls open the heavens again and he comes down and he says, Peter, are you missing the whole point? What's going on with you anyhow? Get it straight, Peter. Your life depends on it. You start celebrating Moses, what are you going to get? What came by Moses? Law. What came by Jesus? Grace and truth. Who are you going to pay attention to? Moses had his function. The law was good, but it was weak because, or the sinful flesh was weak, therefore it could not get the job done. The law was good. The law is holy. The law stands But by the keeping of the law, by the doing of the law, no flesh will ever be justified in my sight. Peter, for goodness sakes, don't go celebrate some principle of living. That was meant to point to something. Don't go celebrating Elijah, the great moral reformer, who uses the power of God, who God reveals his power through Elijah to destroy the prophets of Baal, and somehow there was cause for celebration then. Of course, Elijah gets totally depressed and wants to die. Don't go celebrating Elijah's moral reform campaigns. That was a picture of something which is now being realized before you. Peter, I don't want you to build three shelters and make these three people equal. The others are forerunners. They're, they're, they're pointers toward the only one in whom there can be life. Don't you see, Peter? You look through all the history of time and everybody has the disease, including Moses, including Elijah. There's no life in them, Peter. Look at John 12. Forgive the rapidity with which we're going through this. I hope you'll be willing to ponder it in your own as time continues. John chapter 12, and let's spend our last few minutes on this. Verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those, John 12 and verse 20, who went up to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. And these were Greeks who had been involved in Jewish worship because we're told that in verse 20. And they come to Philip and they say, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Now, again, the idea of this is not catch a glimpse of Jesus because that wasn't all that difficult to do. He wasn't a recluse. He moved about in the crowds. And many people had a glimpse. They saw the the face of Jesus. They saw the man who had no beauty that he would be naturally desired by just looking at him. But they're saying, we think there's more to Jesus than what we've seen. We want to actually get to know this one. And Philip went to tell Andrew, perhaps not sure how to handle the situation. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus, and notice his response. We commented on Monday, or on Tuesday morning rather, that Jesus' response is strange. Well, his response is always perfect, it just looks strange to us. He replied and says to this opportunity to socially interact with some truth-seekers who want to see him, his next sentence is, The hour has come. How did the request to see Jesus precipitate that in his mind? I think he's saying this, You can't see me the way I want to be seen until something further takes place. You have in your mind that if we got together and chatted And I shared with you my wisdom, maybe leading a military campaign, because I can do a lot with bread and fish. No more knapsacks to carry food along. If you got to know me and take advantage of me and got to realize a little more of my wisdom and my teaching and my power, then something wonderful would happen. And Jesus says, no, I've come for a very different purpose than you understand. My hour has come, and if you want to see me, you must understand the hour that is about to take place. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. If I go back to the Father now, you'll never see me. What I've revealed so far is not enough for life. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And to take a a rich passage and reduce it to its simple essence, he's saying, in response to the Greeks who wanted to see him, that if you really want to see me, watch me die. Because when you watch me die, you will get a revelation of the heart of the Father that will change your life when you see it. And as he anticipates what is about to come, as the man Christ Jesus, fully God, fully man, anticipates the cost that he's going to have to pay to make known the Father, his response in verse 27 is very, very strong. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Shall I say that that doubt that was locked in the heart of Adam and Eve that has been passed on to all generations is simply going to continue? Shall so I say that all men will live in the energy of Cain, the way of Cain, and all will have a civilization without love, which ultimately defines hell? Will I say that the godly line of Seth, which was never sufficient to bring life in and of itself, and because of its flaw, intermarried with the ungodly line of Cain, and as a result, there's no possibility of relationship, shall I, the one who in counsels past, and eternity past, the one who said to the Father and to the Spirit, Send me, Father, I want to go and make known what you're like. We have a plan, and I want to honor it. Shall I say, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Why did I come to the hour? To reveal the Father, so people, when they see what you're like, will no longer doubt. And in the middle of bad memories of childhood abuse, in the middle of struggles with death and sickness and money problems, in the middle of all the miserable elements that life seems to bring without predictability or pattern, in the middle of all the experiences of life, my people will have the anchor that they're intended to have until I make everything right. And the anchor they're intended to have is God is with me, and he's good, and I can trust him, and I can worship him, and I can rest because I know what he's like. Save me from this hour, then my people are lost. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, show yourself. Glorify your name. And a voice the third time comes from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I think one of the most fascinating parts of this text is what happens next. The Father bursts out from heaven and says, Yes, my excitement has reached its apex. My passion is now full because I know what's going to happen. What I'm going to do in just a a few hours... Because I'm going to allow sinful men, energized by the evil one, to take you, my son, and to nail you to a cross. When you're nailed to the cross, I'm going to look at every doubt and every wickedness that came out of doubt. At every rapist, at every molester, at every thief, at every... Husband who retreats from his wife, and every father who abandons his children, and all of my rage against people who have defiled my intentions, who have gone away from me, who have lived in their own resources, who have cut themselves off from me, who have said we want no parts of you, all of my holy fury against all who have done these things, I'm gonna look at you, son, and treat you like that rapist. I'm gonna treat you like that murderer. I'm going to hold you responsible for all that's happened. All our sins were placed on Christ. And I'm going to come down and I'm going to punish you with all my fury because of all the evil that's happened in the world. Then people will see I can be trusted. I'm that kind of God. I'm a gracious God. I've glorified my name and I'm about to glorify it again in a way that's going to break my heart and is going to kill you. The crowd that was there and heard that voice apparently couldn't make out the words. They said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. If I'm right in reading that verse to indicate that no one literally heard the words, then the next phrase makes no sense. Apparently. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit. Well, then why didn't he make it possible for them to figure out the words? All they heard was thunder. Some thought an angel was talking in a language different than theirs, I presume. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now, what does that mean? This is my last thought, and we'll we'll end. What does that mean? Remember in Exodus 19, don't turn to it, but in Exodus 19, God said that when you're with me on the mountain, Moses, there's going to be thunder. There's going to be a loud noise, and that's going to tell the people, wake up. Pay attention. What is about to happen has great significance for you. And I believe God is again thundering from heaven and saying to the people, the center of all of history is about to be unveiled before your eyes. You pay attention. Something very mighty is about to happen. This voice was for your benefit. Pay attention. I already know what's going on. I know what I'm doing. The voice was not for my benefit. The voice was so that you would pay attention. Because now was the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world, the one who infiltrates our mind with doubt, will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. How? How are men drawn to the Savior? By looking at the cross and seeing the heart of God. Folks, that's why I suggest... At the most important time in the life of the Christian, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. The thunder comes, and we look at Jesus, crucified, buried, and raised. We proclaim his death. Why? What do we see in his death? The fact of the heart of God that will end all doubt if we can see it. What's our job as biblical counselors I didn't to sort through all that's happened to people. I didn't to figure out all the dynamics that are going on inside the human soul. It's to do all that we do for the single purpose of pointing to Christ in a way of helping us see that He's revealing the heart of the Father. And when the heart of the Father is revealed, when we see what He's really like, then we're going to develop a passion for the one who made that heart known, for the one who came to make the Father known. Lord I pray that you'll take these very weak words, so poorly delivered, and I pray that you'll forgive us for not having the passion that ought to be there. Father, I wonder that my heart is not just inflamed to the point where I can't help but shout. I wonder as I think about these things why I can say it so calmly with not being terribly moved. I wonder why it is that I'm more aware that I'm a little bit thirsty and want a glass of water than wanting to worship and to sing. Lord, the day is going to come when we're going to see you as you are and we're going to sing. And we're going to sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Lord, until that day, we want to learn a little more of that song. We want to sing a little more from our hearts. We want to be the kind of people who, when the bad memories come, when the troubles in marriage come, when the financial problems hit, when the health problems scare us to death, when the craziness inside us just overwhelms us. We want to learn not to figure it all out but to sing in the middle of it. To sing that you are worthy and that you've put us in a position of absolute rest and now one who cares about us the way that was revealed on the cross is in charge of our lives. Father, teach us that whatever happens you can be trusted. You can be believed. Father, help us to leave this conference tomorrow with a little little more of a song that anticipates the great song that we'll sing with fullness and consuming passion for eternity. Bless us, we pray, because we're at your mercy. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit largerstory.com.